We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, Cuba's Baseball Defectors, The Inside Story. The publisher, Roman and Littlefield. The author, Peter Bjarkman. Please join me as we welcome Peter Bjarkman to the clubhouse. All right. I really appreciate being here. Uh, I've listened to a few of this most recent podcasts and have an idea of how this works. And it's a great venue. And I think it's just wonderful you have this opportunity to, to do this kind of thing for people interested here in this area uh, in baseball books. I can't answer your question about why Roman Littlefield books are expensive. It's okay. obviously because of the extremely lucrative uh, advances that Roman Littlefield <laughs> <laughs> and also the fact and also the fact that they force authors like me to keep their books to a certain size and so I the original manuscript for this book I had to cut about 30% the book came in about 30% longer and they said that, well, we're now going to have to raise the price for another $15 you know if we don't so they kind of put the pressure on me to cut it down so those of you, who, when you take a look at the book, you'll see it's it's somewhat of an academic book, and it has I don't know something like 30 pages of notes. And uh, originally, it had 70 or 80 pages of notes in the book. And a lot, some of the most interesting stuff was in the notes, and that had to disappear in order to keep the price where it is. Um, but this book is is quite a bit uh, different. Uh, there's a lot of baseball here. I mean, it's focused on baseball. But this is not only a baseball book, uh, it's a baseball book of a different kind, and it's um, about much more than baseball. And I want to violate, right at the beginning here, uh, one of the absolute, you know, kind of sacrosanct uh, dictums of any kind of public presentation like this, where everybody is always <laughs> told they must turn off their cell phones, and I have my own cell phone on. And the reason is that I, I thought the appropriate way to start this was to read something to you, and the only place I have it here is online. Um, this book has received a lot of attention, it's received a lot of reviews, but recently it's received two reviews that were somewhat surprising to me, um, and that have been very helpful to the pop spreading the word about the book. The first one was a Spanish language review uh, by Jorge Ibro in the Miami, uh, Spanish language version of the Miami Herald. And I have not been the most popular person with the Miami Cuban uh, uh, baseball fans or the, Ma the Miami Cuban uh, population in over the years. There's <clears throat> been a lot of negative stuff written on the website that I do, uh, baseballdecuba.com with Ray Otero. A lot of stuff on my Facebook page uh, by people who have seen me over the years as being, uh, quote, a shill for the Castro communist government. Okay? So I'm very unpopular with a lot of people in Miami because of my positive stance about the Cuban baseball that has existed after the revolution, with my defense of that baseball system, and with my strong sympathy for players staying within Cuba rather than leaving to play in the major leagues. So this review, I expected that uh, the Miami uh, Spanish language edition of the Miami Herald would probably really pan this book because of its essentially largely pro-Cuban stance. Uh, but there was a very fair review, uh, I thought, uh, in, in the Miami paper that 
actually was not 100% glowing review. I mean, it had its doubts and its questions about the book, but I thought it was very fair and honest. Uh, I was also a little bit surprised by a review that appeared yesterday. You know, very uh, interesting and positive, and I think fair and balanced review again in Baseball America. Uh, most of you know what Baseball America is. And I was uh, expecting that Baseball America either would ignore the book or also would uh, not be positive about it because uh, I do take to task their main writer who uh, writes about Cuban baseball and has kind of presented himself uh, both on their online versions and in print and in a lot of interviews he's done as the uh, uh, Baseball America expert on Cuban baseball. He does a lot of analysis of the prospects of the top prospects in Cuba and ranks the defectors in that have not yet signed in terms of their potential of major leagues and so forth and has written articles about what it's like to watch baseball in Cuba and so forth. He's never been to Cuba and uh, he, he does not go to the international tournaments where Cuba plays and I've had problems with that. So again, I expected a rather kind of negative approach to the book from Baseball America, but there was a really interesting review yesterday and what's particularly interesting is the opening of this review and this is what I want to share with you because it says as well as I could say what essentially this book is about and, and really lays out the framework or the, the background of the atmosphere for this book. And so the review begins by saying, you don't have to follow baseball to be riveted by the details of Yasel Puig's defection. His extraordinary journey from Cienfuegos, Cuba to Los Angeles by way of Mexico is complete with smuggling, kidnapping, narrow escape, the kind of story arc you'd want from an, actual, uh, ac an action Hollywood blockbuster. Some readers might assume a book about Cuba's baseball defectors would take the Hollywood approach, shining a light on Puig and other stars who's, who have risked life and limb for political freedom and major league glory. Uh, but Bjarkman's new book, uh, Cuba's Baseball Defectors, The Inside Story, offers a more skeptical view of that narrative, as well as a scathing critique of the agents who have turned a blind eye to the human trafficking that's behind many of these defections. His focus, he focused less on star players and their sensational escapes and more on the sum total of those defections and the impact they've had on the community left behind. This is a country, Cuba he's referring to, this is a country that fervently loves its baseball but can barely pay its athletes. So as each player leaves, the infrastructure of the game continues to erode on the island. Okay? And that's kind of, a, in, in, in a nutshell, uh, largely what this book deals with. Uh, as some of you know, I've traveled for years to Cuba, almost 20 years now. I have over 60 trips to the island. I've watched the Cuban national team play in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, in international tournaments. Many of the star players on the Cuban national teams over the years have been very close friends of mine. Uh, and I've got to know them. I've been uh, on the island enough to know them in their homes. I know their families, as well as uh, knowing their baseball careers. So this book was kind of a personal venture for me. And uh, for a long time, as I mentioned when I started out, uh, I uh, really was, um, I could understand and I supported the decision of players who wanted to leave and seek an opportunity to play at a higher level, uh, to uh, benefit their families economically, but I also was um, saddened when players left Cuba because 
I saw the Cuban League as, as a remarkable institution, as a remarkable alternative baseball universe to Major League Baseball, really the only one in the world that existed. As isolated in some ways as Japanese baseball or Korean baseball or uh, uh, baseball in Chinese Taipei are, uh, those leagues are not that far removed uh, from Major League Baseball. For one thing, the players have flown have flowed back and forth from the Japanese League to Major League Baseball, although not in great numbers, it does happen. Cuban baseball was completely isolated from Major League Baseball for decades, uh, and yet it was a league that produced tremendous stars, many of Major League caliber, and produced national teams that dominated on the international scene. But more important than that, it was a central social um, and entertainment and cultural institution within Cuba. Uh, there's not a lot to do in Cuba in the rural areas when you get outside of Havana and these smaller capital cities like Cienfuegos and, and uh, Ciego de Avila and Santi Espiritus. Uh, during the months when baseball is going on, uh, it's about the only thing that, that requires the electricity to be turned on after 8 p.m. to have the lights out in the stadiums. It's tough finding restaurants in any of these places after the sun goes down, okay? Baseball is everything. Everybody can walk to the stadium. The whole community surrounds uh, the baseball stadium and the baseball sport. You know, we talk here about baseball being the, um, uh, the national pastime in the United States. And I guess in our minds, those of us who are uh, older than, let's say, 50, uh, that's the baseball we grew up with. That's the, the world we grew up with. And we still kind of believe in that in that mythology, but it really is a mythology. I mean, baseball is not the national pastime here. It's certainly not the most popular, popular spectator sport or popular professional sport. I think for years, you'd have to say the NFL is, is now really the national pastime. Or if you just want to look at mere numbers, uh, people keep telling me that, uh, for example, NASCAR has a much wider population following uh, than, uh, or at least it had until recent years, than Major League Baseball. So. Baseball is kind of historically, traditionally, the national pastime, but it's really not the number one sport uh, in this country anymore, certainly not as far as young people playing. Okay? And this is another issue. And this is one of the reasons why international players have become such a major uh, component of, major, uh, of, of our major leagues here is because uh, I don't think we have the talent uh, any longer uh, to maintain a 30-team league uh, at the level that we're familiar with in Major League Baseball without having international players who now make up over, over more than 30% of the total number of players in Major League Baseball and probably a much higher percent of the top stars, uh, mainly from Latin America but also from Asia and other now increasingly other parts players from Europe also. So um, yeah, baseball is crucial in Cuba and um, unfortunately what has happened uh, is that the Cuban system uh, that has existed from Fidel's takeover in 1959, uh, early 1960, um, has been eroding. Uh, it cannot survive, uh, and I'm talking now not about the baseball, I'm talking about their entire social structure and their political system and their economic system. Probably cannot survive all that much longer without major evolution. Uh, it cannot survive um, maybe even another decade, maybe even another five years, it's already being modified uh, to a form of limited capitalism. Uh, so uh, Cuba has suffered very hard times uh, economically over the years. Some of you know about the special period in the late uh, 1980s, early 1990s. There was a recovery from that. But now I've noticed in the last 10 years, I mean, the conditions are, are much more arduous, particularly in Havana for Cuban uh, 
people living in Cuba uh, than they were when I first started going there 18, 19 years ago. So uh, they're, they're really struggling to keep their system alive. Uh, and the baseball has really suffered. And it has now taken a major hit in the last four or five years with the massive defection of players out of there. So um, the thing is evolving, and my, uh, my own interest and focus on Cuban baseball for a long time was on trying to present in the website that I do with uh, my colleague Ray Otero. We, for years, I don't know if some of you may know about that website, baseballdaycuba.com. We've had uh, direct feed. Uh, you could go on the internet and on our website and watch games from Cuba. We took the feed from Cuban television. Uh, we provide a much more elaborate, uh, detailed uh, website on Cuban baseball than the Cuban Baseball Federation does because of their limit, limited technology there. And so my em emphasis over the years, I wrote a book a few years back on the complete history of Cuban baseball, was on getting out information, getting out the message about the Cuban League and how interesting it was. Uh, it wasn't a major league level, but it was certainly higher than double A and it featured players who were definitely major league stars. And I was interested in providing for North American audiences an insight into that, that Cuban league. Uh, my focus has necessarily changed as that league has begun to collapse to the story of how and why it's collapsing and what's happening with all the players who have left there and are coming to the U.S. and either succeeding greatly in the major leagues, a few of them, or finding that that dream never materializes, many of them never even signing professional contracts. Uh, so now this brings me around, of course, to then writing this book focused on uh, the defectors. For many, many years, I would argue, and this was one of the things that got me in hot water with a lot of people in Miami, I argued against the use of the term defectors. And there have been quite a few people who pointed out to me, now it's ironic, you now write a book on Cuba's baseball defectors. When I argued on the internet uh, and my, uh, my work with the baseball website for quite a number of years, that that term should not be used that these guys were not defectors because that has such strong political overtones and the assumption of so many people and the thing that you, a lot of people in Miami wanted you to believe was that these players were leaving Cuba because they were protest, protesting against the Cuban system and the Cuban government. And I would always say, well, you know, what about all these, <clears throat> these workers for years who came down out of Canada, came from Windsor, Ontario, across the lines into Detroit, to work in the automobile uh, factories because they can make much better money in the state. Are they defectors from Canada? You know, uh, Of course, obviously, the situation was a little different because they could go back, whereas the Cuban players who left couldn't go back. So, And they are br branded in their own country as traitors, and they still are. That's still the official, official line in Cuba. That's changing a little bit, and we'll talk about that when probably when we get to the question and answer session. Uh, so my focus shifted, and it was time to tell this story. And it was time to tell the story in a way that has run some personal risks for me, I think. Um, I have been, I was thinking for years about uh, writing a, a book about all my travel experiences in Cuba. Uh, and it's something I'm, that's my next project that I'm working on, a book I've tentatively um, referred to as I would like to title it, uh, The Yankee in Cuba's Dugout. I don't know if we'll eventually end up with that title or not, but because of my experiences in literally being in the Cuban dugout in international tournaments, being with the team, usually not in the dugout during games, but before and after, having access through Cuban security because they know me that other uh, people in the U.S. press and other fans and what didn't have for the Cuban team. Um, and, but I always was hesitant to write that book because it involved telling a lot of stories about things that I experienced in Cuba and with the team overseas 
that probably would embarrass some people in Cuba, would make people in the Cuban Baseball Federation, who always were good to me and tolerated me, but I think in many, many cases, at least some of the top Cuban baseball officials kind of resented my being around, but they knew because of my close relationship with the players that sometimes they, they, if, if they if they kind of banned me from interaction with the players, they they'd have more problems than letting me be there. Okay, because I wasn't outwardly doing them any damage, but um, but they, I had a lot of stories to tell that would probably not go over well there, and so I hesitated in writing this book. Um, there are other people who have written books about their travel experiences in Cuba and, uh, and also about Cuba, baseball in Cuba, not as extensively as I have, who have been very careful to uh, talk about people who they uh, interacted with in Cuba or became friends with in Cuba, or they spent time with in Cuba, and give them pseudonyms because it would say, well, you know, they probably, we don't want to say who their actual names are. They may get in trouble back home. Their families might have problems or whatever. Now, I never wanted to do that. But I was hesitant if I was going to talk about real people in a real context, and uh, was this going to cause some other people problems, embarrassments, maybe risk some friendships that I had, maybe jeopardize some friendships with some of the players. Um, so I kind of held, I mean, that book, I've been kind of working on that book off and on for a number of years, but never getting it all together because I didn't know <coughs> what I should talk about and what I shouldn't. And then two years ago at uh, Sabre in Houston, uh, editor from uh, Roman Littlefield sat down with me. We were chatting about stuff, and and she said, you know, you, this is a, you got to tell a story about the defectors, and, and you got to tell it in this way, and whatever. And you've got all this stuff, and you know, what after 20 years, what good <coughs> if you don't eventually talk about us, what all these experiences, what good are they? And, and that's that was my feeling. So I bit the bullet, and there is a lot of stuff in this book. I'm really. Um, I don't know uh, what my welcome is going to be going back to Cuba now. The book, uh, I was there in October. Uh, the book had not come out yet. Uh, it is, as I mentioned, it's, it's relatively pro-Cuban, the Cuba baseball system, supportive of what they've tried to do in keeping their players there, why, explaining why they've tried to do it and so forth. On the other hand, it does reveal a lot of dark secrets. It reveals some of the actions that the uh, Cuban baseball uh, authorities have taken to try to keep uh, players there that have jeopardized other innocent people. I will tell you right up front, because it's in the book. You can read about this in the book. Uh, we know for a fact that Aroldis Chapman and Yasiel Puig and Yasmani Tomas, that all three of those players were involved uh, in early defection attempts, uh, were caught, and uh, were suspended from the league, and in two cases, briefly imprisoned in Cuba and then were coerced by the, or I don't know if coerced is the right word, but were talked into naming names of people that tried to help them defect. And there are seven or eight people right now uh, who are in prison in Cuba, serving long prison terms for aiding those three players in defecting because they were fingered by the players. And in all those cases, as far as we know, they didn't have any involvement at all in that. They, they, did, they weren't really trying to help them defect. or. If, in the one case with Yasmani Tomas, who um, there are eight people in his case who were serving prison terms, two of whom were his cousins, and when he was caught during that first defection attempt, and I'm not the only one to write about this. This has been written about some other press articles here in the U.S. Um, Tomas claimed that he was um, kidnapped and that these guys coerced him uh, under threat to try to leave the country, uh, that he had no part in it, 
they wanted him on the team for the, sec the third World Baseball Classic in 2013. He named names, he was put on the team, he went and played in Tokyo, actually got the hit in the, the game, that they, the final game that they lost against the Netherlands and didn't make it to the final four in San Francisco, but he got the hit in the seventh inning that put them ahead and looked like he was gonna be the huge hero that was gonna put them in, in uh, San Francisco, but then it didn't hold up and they lost the game in extra innings. Uh, and then he went back to Cuba, played part of a season with Industriales and then defected again and got out of the country, okay? As we know, Puig and, and Chapman, after getting back on the national team, were eventually able to then later on defect. So there's a lot of skeletons in the closet in Cuba and I think one of the worst things, one of the things I talk about in several places in the book, uh, one of the things going to go over, let's say, going to be least popular among Cuban baseball authorities is my discussions of the pressure that has been put on the players on the national team that has made their life really miserable when they play overseas uh, in international tournaments and that they very much resent. Uh, the players to a man are strongly um, unhappy with the conditions under which they play overseas. Not enough to leave, although some of them have left only for that reason. Have any, did any of you see the Brothers in Exile, the 30 for 30 Brothers in Exile? You know Levon Hernandez talking in that, about, uh, in that documentary about how as a young player on the national team in a tournament in Japan, uh, he, he finally made the decision that when, after he got back to Cuba that that was gonna be his last trip. He then would defect uh, on the national team in a practice session in Mexico a year later. But the players, um, and this was during, back then with Levon, that was during the special period in the late 1980s. Uh, families of these players literally had nothing in Cuba. I mean, things were very tough in the late 80s. And the players were doing things like uh, collecting soap and, and towels and shampoo out of the hotels and stuff them in their bags to take home to their families because they couldn't buy shampoo. And then when they had their final team meetings in the hotel before everything was packed up to go to the to the airplane uh, to fly home, the Cuban security would go through all their bags and make them throw everything away and would not allow them to take the bottles of soap and so forth. So it, it, it was, and they were told, you know, you, you guys are playing for the system and for you know, the love of Fidel and the love of the government and the, the love of, uh, of our socialist baseball and our anti-capitalist stance and you've got to be pure. You, if you do this, this is selling out to the, to the capitalist system and so forth. So they weren't even allowed to take shampoo home. So. This, this pressure on the players has been great over the years. I've been one of the few who have had a chance to be around the teams uh, in the hotels uh, in Europe, in particular in other places in Latin America, during the World Baseball Classic, because I had been in Cuba so much and the, the individuals who were working with Cuban security who traveled with the team knew me. They knew me around the stadium and uh, they knew my friendship with the players and so I was not barred from the floor of the hotel where the players were but everybody else was, oh, press was, and the Cuban players overseas, particularly in Europe, they're like rock stars. Uh, a lot of women want to get up there, you know, and leave the hotel rooms, and a lot of fans want to get up there and get stuff autographed or just interact with the players, and part of the reason for the heavy security is simply their extreme focus on baseball and on winning, so they don't want distractions, but they also don't want um, agents up there, and they don't want, uh, maybe individuals, maybe some young woman who's been kind of working with an agent to get up there to try to entice a player that, you know, you want to leave, we can get, we have a car outside, we'll get you, you know. So um, 
it was very tight security. I was able to uh, kind of bridge that and spend a lot of time with the players in the hotel and so forth. But um, the players would tell me how uh, you know they really resented, particularly the commissioner at the time. You read about this in the book. Uh, how uh, the reign of terror that went on in the hotels and so forth. So it was a very com uncomfortable situation. And I think in, in sympathy for Cuban baseball officials in recent years, in particular, as the defections have increased and increased and increased, they are under tremendous pressure from above, from other government officials above them, to stop the defections. They're making every effort they can to try to stop them. They try to stop them in two ways. One I'll hit on in a minute is giving some opportunities for the players to play professionally in other leagues overseas. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the other is to simply try to, to keep, not a, an arm guard in the sense of, you know, under rifle cover or pistol cover, but to keep a very, these players are chaperoned like you wouldn't believe. You know, it's like having a, a bunch of 13-year-olds uh, or 14-year-olds old, old, on a European trip and you want to make sure you're on top of them every minute in the hotel because you don't want these kids out wandering the streets in Paris getting themselves into trouble. This is the way that Cuban players are treated overseas. So uh, this very tight control over the players, and um, so they, they would tell me all the time about, you know, they would, had to stay in their hotel rooms. They couldn't go down on, into the lobby. They couldn't mix with fans. One exception of that was in the Netherlands where things were a little bit more relaxed because of just the atmosphere over there and the and the working relationship between the two, the Cuban government and the Dutch government. But in doing that kind of a, uh, taking that kind of a stance and trying to control the players that way, they've simply made it worse and m made some players so upset and so angry with the system that they've left simply because of that reason. So in a sense, what I'm saying is they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. They've attempted these efforts to, uh, to now market some players overseas. So some of you may know about the, the connection with Japan and some of their top stars have played in the last couple of seasons over in Japan. The Spine A has played over there with Lotte, uh, big slugger who has not defected, is still in uh, Cuba. Uh, he's playing now this summer again uh, with the Lotte Giants. Uh, Yulieski Guriel, who recently defected, was playing there uh, in um, Yokohama. Uh, his younger brother, who just defected with him, was scheduled to go to Yokohama last year, but neither of them ever got there for. Uh, if you're interested in why, ask me a question about that later, and I'll go into it. Um, and uh, Freddy Cepeda played over there as another pitcher, Hector Mendoza. Uh, so the idea was to send these players over there, and we'll change the system. It used to be that when any Cuban sports, uh, any athletes or doctors or lawyers, you know, they send a lot of people overseas to do uh, work in the name of the Cuban government. Uh, whatever salaries, they, those were plum positions for Cubans because it was the way, only way most Cubans could travel out of the country and could earn a salary and bring stuff back, you know, like TV sets and computers and so forth. But uh, what they earned, uh, they would keep 20% and 80% would go back to the government. Now they reverse that with these players going to Japan and uh, the players are keeping 80% and, and the Cuban Baseball uh, Administration is getting 20% to pump back in Cuban baseball. So the Spine, for example, had a two point, I think it's $2.8 million contract last year in, in uh, Japan. $2.8 million, you say, I mean, a lot of major leaguers make that per game now, don't they, or something like that, or per week or whatever. Um, but um, 2.8 million, 80% of that going back to Cuba? Are you kidding me? The life, that, you know, I mean, he's the spine the, the is, the, is the wealthiest guy in Cuba now, okay? Uh, Cepeda had a million dollar contract. And some people have said, oh, you know, but this is ridiculous. I mean, they get, why should the government take 20%, okay? 
Well, major league player who has a 30 or $40 million contract, what percent of that does he play in the U.S. taxes? Okay, this is the, they're not, they don't pay other taxes. This is their tax at 20%, okay? Well, most Americans pay a lot more than 20% rate in taxes. So that, that's just kind of a side note. Um, so they attempt, made this attempt and they found out some players to now to the, to the Can-Am League and they had some players playing up there the last couple of years. The problem is that most of the players in the Cuban League felt, well, yeah, these four or five or six guys who've been loyal to the system for years and have put in eight, you know, nine, 10, 12, 14 years, then they're getting to go over there. I'm never going to have it. I'm going to have to wait 15 years. You know, I might, it's never going to happen for me. And then the players that were going to Canada, they're playing in this Can-Am Can -Am League. This is, you know, most college university players on scholarship get more money than the guys playing in the Can-Am League. You probably know about the fact that two years ago, a minor league players has sued Major League Baseball about the fact that most minor league players in, here in the, in, in, in the Major League Baseball organization, in organized baseball, most minor league players don't make minimum standard minimum wage because most of them are making uh, somewhere around uh, maybe $20,000, $25,000 okay, a year, which is not minimum wage. But the, all we hear about is, is the major league salaries and the guys at the top who are making signing $30 million and $40 million contracts and so forth. So. Um, so this, this really didn't work to solve their problem. I mean, it wasn't enough of a carrot to, to keep, keep players in the country. Uh, what the book actually, and I'll, I'll just say this about it, and then I think the, the best thing we can do here is just have you ask me questions, and I'll answer because there's so much involved in this story. But the book is really, there's four elements to it. There is a rather concise, compared to my long-winded uh, 400 or 500 page history of Cuban baseball, there's a a rather more concise couple of chapters in here that summarize the history of Cuban baseball, particularly from the time of the revolution up until the last couple of years, that explain the background of how and why we got to this point with the players leaving, what the Cuban baseball system they're coming out of is and was. Uh, there is, secondly, a, a rather concise and pointed history of U.S.-Cuba relations since 1959 which explain uh, how and why we got to this place. Also, not only with the baseball, but in the whole business of Cuba-U.S. relations leading up to the efforts at detente, which started in December 2014 with Obama. So there's those two elements, which um, are the background to the story. Then, of course, there's the story of the major impact that a, a number of these players, a half dozen or more of these players, have had in the last three or four years. The Puigs, the Abreus, the Cespedes, the, the Chapmans, uh, Leonis Martin, a few others, uh, Alexei Ramirez, the impact some of these players have had in the major leagues and how they demonstrated how good the quality of Cuban ballplayers is. And then finally, and uh, most centrally, and I think, I don't know if any of you saw the, uh, the show that I did yesterday with uh, MLB Productions, MLB Now, with Brian Kenny yesterday afternoon when we talked about the book a little bit and it was clear from the questions that he wanted to ask me and the things we discussed that one area that they were not, he did not want to focus on and wasn't going to go to was the whole background story of the human trafficking. But then they have a segment at the end of that story, at the end of that program, where they say everybody has the last word. And is there anything that you didn't get to say on the show that you want to say? And, I, and when they asked me, do you have something to say? And I said, yes, of course. And that is that if one reads this book, one, what one finds is the story of a rather ugly background 
to the transfer of many, many of these players out of Cuba, how it's been going on, what the risks for the players and their families have been, and what is a rather embarrassing at this point in time involvement of Major League Baseball in all of this. Uh, I will answer questions about it, but what I'll tell you is a general overview statement. There is no evidence that Major League Baseball has in any way orchestrated or openly encouraged defections of players out of Cuba, particularly through any kind of illegal means that would violate immigration laws of either of the countries. On the other hand, you find Major League Baseball over the last half dozen years throwing some humongous contracts at some of these defectors. $72 million for Ruzni Castillo. Uh, a much lesser amount, but still significant, of something like $24 million originally at uh, Leonis Martin. Uh, the $60 million contract that Yosemani Tomas got, $68 million to Abreu, and so forth, okay? In all of these cases, MLB was working with player agents representing those players who we know have been directly working with the human traffickers. Uh, and one point uh, that has made that so obviously clear now after the book came out was the story that broke about a month and a half ago about the arrest of Bart Hernandez, who is the agent, among others, been agents for, he's now one of the agents uh, representing um, Abreu, or was until very recently. Abreu had moved on to a different agency, but he was Abreu's agent at the time. And the story is, he has been arrested uh, along with a colleague of his, uh, kind of a, a bird dog guy that was working with him uh, and is now facing trial in Miami, upcoming trial where he could be uh, possibly sentenced for 40 years of prison time for human trafficking. And that the story has, uh, court documents have revealed that Abreu paid $5.8 million to him as a payoff for uh, originally getting him out of Cuba after Abreu signed his contract. So there's this whole background of Major League Baseball not orchestrating, not necessarily even opening, openly encouraging beforehand, but enabling all of this by paying off these huge salaries, not only to the players, but to the huge cuts to the agents who are arranging this. And this all goes back to originally uh, Joe Kubis, who was behind the defections of Levan Hernandez and uh, Ronaldo Arojo, and uh, Rene Arocha and several others in the early 1990s where Kubis hit on uh, what he called the Joe Kubis plan. This is talked about in the 30 for 30 documentary of the SOT. And I talk about it here in the book where Kubis suddenly realized that because of the OFAC embargo regulations involving Cuba and because of the possible desire of major league teams for the, some of this talent that was in Cuba, if you could get these guys out of Cuba by any means, and also part of that would be to help smuggle their families out, uh, violating Cuba, Cuba's embargo, uh, uh, immigration laws, whether you agree with the Cuban government system or politics or whatever, they have their laws of what is illegal immigration out in and out of their country. Um, that if you could get these players out and then get them a third country residence, which the, uh, the embargo required and MLB procedures required, that you could make huge amounts of money. So he, he started that whole operation of getting players and then moving them to third countries, and, and that's what's continued on and has escalated in recent years with uh, the success that players like Puig and Abreu and a few of the others have had. So uh, all of that story is, is in there too. Um, some, some of you are familiar with uh, the case of Joanna Cespedes because you're Mets fans now, many of you, and you know how the great year he's having 
this year with the Mets and last year. You remember when he first came to the Oakland A's, when he defected from Cuba and signed with the Oakland A's. Uh, there was a, a, a really fascinating backstory behind uh, Cespedes' departure from Cuba. He was involved right before he defected in an automobile accident uh, when he left the national team because he was upset with uh, the fact that the national team preparing for the 2011 Baseball World Cup, World Cup in Panama was divided into three squads that were then traveling internationally in tournaments preparing for that uh, upcoming World Cup in 2011, and he was put on the squad that was going to go to Venezuela. Everybody wanted to go to the Netherlands because that's where they could do the shopping and where they had more freedom and whatever. Going to Caracas and playing, that was like staying in Havana. So Cespedes was a little bent out of shape. He had just uh, won the home run crown or tied with Abreu for the home run crown, won the RBI crown, which prevented um, Abreu from winning the triple crown, which no one's ever done in the Cuban League post-revolution. And uh, so he departed from the team. But he was already secretly kind of planning with his family. His mother was a star pitcher years ago on the Cuban national softball team. They were planning to get the whole family out. Uh, in the course of all of it, a week when all of this was transpiring, he was involved in an automobile accident on the highway that killed an individual who, uh, 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 before he died, immediately ad admitted to authorities that he was drunk and he was riding his bike in the middle of the highway in that national highway that has no lights. Cespedes was exonerated. Uh, he was not charged with, the, he didn't flee. The original story was that he was fled and was in hiding from Cuban authorities. That was never true. He did use the uh, event, however, as an excuse for uh, saying that he couldn't go back to practice. He needed a week to recover. He was too upset and whatever, and then he disappeared. And then he, he had arranged with uh, an, an agent in Dominican to get him out of Cuba, and he defected. The aftermath, however, that was when his family got to the Dominican, uh, he was able to, he signed the contract with Oakland. He went to the States, but his family was illegally in the Dominican Republic. And the agent orchestrated some things to keep them there because he was in a dispute then about what percent he should get of Cespedes' salary. And then at the same time also the following year, the families of the individual who was killed decided to try to bring legal action in Florida against Cespedes. So, Without going into the details of all, the point is, you remember he had a, a very good rookie year with Oakland. Second year, he really tailed off. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, he must be a bad attitude, he's a problem in the clubhouse. Oakland, and Oakland then quickly traded him away to the Tigers a year after that. He was facing all this stuff, trying to get his family out of Dominican, what was going on with the lawsuit, all this off-the-court stuff. Leonis Martin, at the same time with Texas Rangers, uh, was dealing with, uh, his family was being held by the agents that got him out of Cuba. They were being held basically prisoner in Miami because they didn't have any passports. He eventually, Leonis eventually ends up suing uh, these agents for extortion and they're now in prison for human trafficking in, my, uh, in Florida. So as all this stuff goes on with the background with these players and Cespedes was one classic case of, of his baseball on the field was affected by all this background story which at the time this was not being talked about in the press. Nobody knew anything about all of this. So a lot of interesting stuff for you to get into here. So I'll stop there and then just field, field questions because I've covered a lot of different areas. Who wants to uh, lead off? Yes. yes. So what is your initial fascination with baseball? How did you become so fascinated? Yeah, okay, that, that's, that's in itself. Uh, I, probably part of the book that I, I told you I'm writing about my whole involvement with Cuba, right? Um, I left uh, academia 
in the mid-1980s. Um, my wife was here as a full professor at Purdue, and we decided that uh, we didn't need two academics in the family, and that I had always wanted to write and I should do something different, and I was very welcome to doing that. So I left Purdue uh, in the late 1980s, and I started, I had always been a huge baseball fan, and I had been teaching, in addition, I was in linguistics, but I was teaching a sports literature class as a kind of a side thing at Purdue, and wanted to get into writing about baseball. And I fell into an opportunity uh, that allowed me to do a couple of baseball history books. And that was in 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, and then a strike came in 94. And I really got turned off by Major League Baseball. And I actually, for a year or two, did several books on basketball. I never got into football. That was, I wasn't gonna go that far, but I, got it. I did a history of college basketball. Uh, I did a couple of coffee table pitch. Most of what I was doing was either uh, uh, biographies for young adult readers or I did a number of coffee table picture books. But I also did one, my first big academic baseball history was a book called Baseball with a Latin Beat, which was published by McFarland in 1994. Very out of date now, but at the time it was really the, the most comprehensive history of baseball in the Latin American countries. I had lived in Ecuador, I had lived in Colombia, I had never been to Cuba, but I had done my PhD on Miami Cuban Spanish. Um, so the strike in, in 94 and my book on Latin American baseball had just come out and I was kind of burned by baseball. And then uh, in uh, a year and a half later, early 1996, a friend of mine, Mark Rucker, do any of you know who Mark Rucker oh, is? Yeah. Okay, Mark Rucker, who has been uh, for years, you know, probably the main photo archivist, if any of you are familiar with Sabre, uh, he provided, uh, he basically with John Thorne started the Ma National, Ma National Pastime Magazine and he provided photographs for, I mean, he's, he's a, he was at the time in Colorado, he's now in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, but he, uh, and he still has his photo archive business and he, he specializes in old baseball photographs, particularly 19th century and in Americana West stuff, cowboy and, and Western things. Well, he uh, was living in Denver, Colorado in 1996, early 1996, and he ran into a guy out there who uh, at that time was taking these illegal cigar tours to Cuba, you know, through, through um, uh, Cancun, you know, signing up uh, 15 to 20 guys, high rollers, who wanted to go down there for the cigars and the rum and the women, okay? And he was taking these trips down there. It was all done illegally because of the travel embargo for America. So. And Mark got talked into going on one of these things. And he went down there, but Mark didn't speak any Spanish. He went down there and started wandering around in the flea markets in Havana and said, oh my God, the photographs, the stuff that's here in the markets. And, you know, there's no acid-free paper in Cuba. And so you'd find books in the, in the, in the, in the book stalls and in the marketplaces, in the tourist marketplaces. You'd find books published in 1977 that looked like they were published in 1778. You know, you open them up, the pages are all yellowed, the, the worm eating through them, because there's, it's a very humid climate, and there's no air conditioning, and there's no acid-free paper. So Mark saw all these, these photographs and old stuff from the 50s, uh, when the, going back to the professional baseball winter league there and everything. And he said, I gotta, I gotta wanna go back there, because he's not, was not only a, a photo archivist, but he was actually a photographer himself also. I want to go back there, I want to collect it. It would be a great project, collect this stuff and do a history of Cuban baseball in photographs. 
So he contacted me in early 1996 and said, you gotta do this. You just wrote this book on Latin American baseball. You know Spanish. You're interested in Cuba. Let's go. And I said, we can't go to Cuba. You can't go to you know, Americans can't travel. Oh yeah, he said, we can contact uh, the Treasury Department. We can get a, a license to go as researchers which we then did. And uh, we started off by going to the Olympics in Atlanta in 1996. And I, we saw every baseball game, and not only the Cuba, Cuban games, but every baseball game in the Atlanta Olympics in 96. And I be immediately became intrigued, not only with the, particularly with the Cuban national team, uh, and this was the team with Linares and Kindlin and, and uh, uh, Contreras was pitching on that team, and Pedro Lasso, and this was back in the, the glory years of the late 1990s, and uh, also fell in love with international baseball, the whole idea of countries playing against countries instead of, you know, our rented ball players here in Boston against your rented ball players there in New York are all going to only play this year and go someplace else next year anyway. Okay? So I really fell in love with the whole concept of international baseball. So right after the Atlanta Olympics, we made our first trip. We eventually did the book. We made several trips that year. We did the book, which was Smoke, which some of you may have seen, know about. You can get it very cheaply on, uh, on eBay and, and Amazon now because they did like 20,000 copies of that book and it put total John Thorne's Total Sports Illustrated Company out of business. business. They went bankrupt. They way overextended on that book and one they had done on Ted Williams. Mm -hmm. uh, Lee probably knows that they did a picture album on Ted Williams. But uh, the book is beautiful, glossy. I mean, the, the money that they put into this and uh, uh, the designer was Todd Radom, who's been a designer with MLB for years, does all the logos for the All-Star game and everything. So that's where we started. And then I just kept going back and got more and more entrenched there and more and more interested. Mark did not continue to go back. Uh, and uh, it's, it became a passion for me. And I had the chance, because I had la left academia, I had the chance to travel with Ronnie to all of her stuff that she does in Europe with her research and to travel to Cuba and uh, as many people have said, I then had the best job in the world, you know, so it was a great opportunity. That's where it all started. Yes, sir. Absolutely. The Cuban team now, although there's still some, uh, well, of course, there's now very, that, well, a couple of things here. First of all, because of the loss of so many of the top star players of recent years, not only through defection, but also in, a, in a, almost an equal number of cases through age. So some of the players who have not left who were huge stars there, like Cepeda and, uh, and, uh, uh, Pedro Lasso, the pitcher, and uh, Freddy Acela Alvarez, who's still pitching for the national team, but he's now 36. A lot of these guys have aged to the point where they would have been rotated off the national team, but they're still playing because the talent is so thin right now. But they've taken a tremendous hit. So that national team, and actually they don't even have, uh, Lee was asking me earlier, you know, what's the team that's going to play this year up against the Can-Am League All-Stars? And I, it hasn't been announced yet. Not All-Stars, it's, it's actually in the league. They're going to kind of, they're, well, they're going to have two things. They're gonna, I think they're going to have, that's the question. They're going to have a group going up there that's going to play X number of games within the league itself. But they're also going to have a national team playing some kind of an All-Star, shorter All-Star series. They're also playing against the U.S. College All-Stars in July in, in Havana. And they, those things are very closely tying together so 
the question is, which, what, who, what will comprise the Cuban national team? There won't be necessarily one team with all the familiar faces that were there for years like it has been for a long time. But those players that were playing on that team against the Orioles, um, there were two, th two or three players on that team who would have been able to play on the team of even four years ago. The team that was in the World Baseball Classic in 2013, you may remember in 2006, Cuba went to the finals. They lost to Japan in the finals. They, they had a, a, an excellent team. All, all the starters on that team were really major league quality, and almost everyone on the 25-man roster was at least a AAA player. But they were lucky. They were lucky in the first round. They won that first game against Panama, when in the ninth inning, Maya hit, uh, should have hit a batter with the bases loaded. It would have ended the game, and the batter you know, hit the dirt when all he had to do was on a soft curveball would stand there and get hit. And, Cuba would have lost that game. They would have never got to the second round. They had some luck. It was a good team. The team they had in, then three years later in 2009 was much better. And the team in 2013 was the best Cuban national team ever, the best group of Cuban players ever. Of that team, seven of the eight position players have defected and have either are either now in the majors or in AAA or played briefly in the majors and kind of bombed out like Alexi Guerrero uh, with the Dodgers and um, uh, Ana the shortstop, who had a very brief cup of coffee with the Dodgers and has been suspended for disciplinary reasons several times and is kind of bombed out uh, of, the, of Major League Baseball. He's been a, one of the failed guys. And another one of the pitchers, um, uh, Miguel Alfredo uh, Gonzalez, was the one that signed a big contract with the Phillies, pitched two innings the end of one season with the Phillies two years ago and didn't make it out of spring training last year, and he's done. So some of these players didn't really pan out, but they, they were all on that national team. And that national team was, every scout that I was with in Japan said this was in, in the, that part of the tournament, that half of the tournament. They were by far and away the best team. They beat Japan when they played Japan head to head in the first round. They lost the two times to the Netherlands in the second round and therefore didn't play Japan. Japan ended up playing the Netherlands. They lost both games on flukes including the one I mentioned with Yosemite. It was just baseball. They lost because of a, and a bad decision by their manager, not pulling a pitcher in late innings and giving up a home run. But, uh, but now, this Cuban national team now is nothing. Can it get back to where it was? Uh, I'm skeptical, okay? Here's the problem. 150 players have left Cuba in the last 15 months, okay, that we know of. I've got a list through last December of about, a, well, I've got a list of 396 defectors in the end of this book. Um, and that list went up through December, and there had been like 30 more since then after the book went to press. Of that number, probably 15 or 20 are legitimate major league prospects. Another 30 might get signed professional contracts and play single A, double A, whatever. 115, 120 of them will never get signed by anybody, okay? They have a lot of young players leaving there who everybody feels now they can grab the drink, okay? And it's not gonna happen. What it's done, though, is it has so decimated the league in terms of just bodies, numbers of players, that they're filled, they've got 17-year-old, 18-year-old players playing in the league. The few good national team stars that are there, like Cepeda and a few others, say to me all the time, in that league, they maybe once a week, if even that, they face a pitcher who can throw above 82 miles an hour, okay? So the quality of the league has dropped. The economy is so bad now, they're talking about cutting back to an 18 league. They've already cut back to, you know, tr traditionally have a 16 team league with 
teams in every province. They have cut back. The last two years, they played first half of the season with 16 teams. Second half of the season, they cut the eight. The bottom eight teams are dropped out, and the other eight go on. And they draft some of the top players off the other. But, but half the players in the league don't only play 45 games. They're now going to probably have to cut down even further. The fields are in bad shape. Several of the stadiums don't have lights. With that kind of infrastructure, how easy is it going to be to develop the good players? A lot of the ex-players, it's not only the players that are defecting that are hoping to play in the major leagues. There are quite a number of former players who retired a decade ago or 10 years ago or five years ago who would normally be coaches and maybe managers in that league who are also now living in Miami. Okay? So the infrastructure is so debilitated right now that their ability to really produce with high-level competition, there are some very good young players there. Okay? And there's this, this junior team that they just had this last year has got some really top players. I don't know how many of them will actually end up staying there. But the ability to, they were able to produce the, the kinds of national teams they did because of the high level of competition uh, that they had going on all year there, starting way down at the junior level, coming up through their sports academies and so forth, but then being honed at that national se uh, series level because their season was basically like an extended spring training to produce a national team. And the, the, the end result of every national series was the production of a national team that could compete at the highest level. So uh, this, is, this raises another question. And that is that if any kind of, you know, everyone thought that immediately after Obama's announcement in 2014, we were all getting on a plane and going to Havana for tourism. MLB was going to set up academies. The players were all going to be released by Cuba. But none of that has happened. And it's not going to happen right away, okay? because the Cubans are dead set against losing the system that they have, even though they, I think, they can't really maintain it in the form that it's in, right? So they're trying to keep that thing going, but they're facing a, such a tremendous uphill climb. And um, I've suggested the solution of something like a posting system, but the issue now that you raise is if they set up a posting system now where players had to be under contract, and by the way, their players don't have any contracts, because contracts don't exist under that kind of a, a, a social economic. The league owns all the teams, so there's not contracts. Um, if they put the players under contracts, they had to play a certain number of years, uh, four or five years, and then they could be free agents come to the States. I don't know now how much money MLB is going to be willing to throw, how many good players there are left right away. Uh, and maybe in four or five or six years, if they're trained properly, if they can do something about showing up the infrastructure, there will be another good wave of players, but don't, don't expect another dozen Abreus and Puigs and so on. Those guys have all come. Most of the good players are out of there now. But you don't see a situation like they have in the Dominican Republic and other places where U.S. teams ultimately have like baseball academies? No, I don't foresee that um, because precisely unless there's a drastic change in the Cuban government and the Cuban system. What was the whole Cuban revolution about? What are they trying to hold on to? Okay? Not having foreign investors and foreign corporations own Cuba and own the things that are in Cuba. So it, right now, one of the big obstacles to, even though the biz, there are doors opening for business, okay? one of the big obstacles to major US investment there is they still, the Cuban law still is that foreign investor owns 40% and the Cuban government owns 60%. 
Hilton and the other big hotel chains, are they gonna go in there and invest you know, millions of dollars in building these hotels and own 40% of it? Probably not, okay? For the same reason, they don't want MLB, so the new baseball commissioner down there has made a number of statements uh, since the kind of the little bit of opening of relations and they, they did let Tampa Bay come in and play one exhibition game, it was very tightly <coughs> controlled, making statements, oh yes, we wanna work with Major League Baseball and so forth. Yes, we'd love to have help from Major League Baseball. We'd love to have some coaching and some interchange. Of course, we will control the players. We will own the academies. We will control the academies. Well, again, that's a real obstacle for people coming from this end want to invest, build infrastructure. So it, I'm not saying that 20 or 15 or 20 years down the road, you won't have that, but you're not going to have it in the next year or two, which everybody thought. Hey, you, I don't think you're going to have it in the next seven or eight years. It's going to be a very slow process. Due to time constraints, we're going to have to end the podcast. If people have questions, they can uh, speak with Peter yeah. after. Uh, again, the book, Cuba's Baseball Defectors, The Inside Story, published by Roman and Littlefield, written by Peter Bjorken. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I'll be glad